0: Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is funny. It's, it's 3.30 on Saturday. Um, everyone just ate 50 grams of saturated fat, in case you didn't read the instructions on the dub bar that you just ate. Um, and so this is why they created 5-Hour Energy, because uh, everyone's about to fall asleep. So um, hopefully we'll make this a little bit fun so that uh, people have um, a reason to stay awake. I know the conference is almost done. You guys must be completely burned out, and there's no Starbucks that will actually uh, maintain your energy. But uh, I will do my best. So um, the point of this is to talk about I'm guessing you guys see a ton of birthmarks. How many of you see children on a regular basis? Awesome. OK, cool. So seeing children, uh, there's lots of stuff that we can just say, hey, that's cool. We can name it for the parents, and we can be really reassuring uh, about it. Uh, But the question is, what subset of patients do we really have to uh, make sure that we catch to make sure that we're not missing anything that's worrisome? So we're going to go through a bunch of different types of birthmarks. I have zero conflicts of interest. Um, I like to say I invented molluscum just to torture people, but uh, I did not do that. It tortures me, too. Um, But we're fortunately not talking about molluscum. So uh, dividing up birthmarks. Um, probably the most useful way of dividing up birthmarks is actually based on color. Uh, and this makes a lot of sense pathophysiologically. And, and if you look at the colors of birthmarks, it at least helps you with a diagnosis of what they are. Most of these things are fairly obvious as to, as to what they are. Um, but sometimes uh, um, there are some controversies, and there are some things that you end up needing to biopsy every once in a while. Uh, most of the things in pediatric dermatology, we really try hard not to biopsy. We try to uh, just make clinical diagnoses. So we'll go through some categories. Um, yellow and tan, brown, red. Uh, deep lumps with no, no color. And then we'll talk about some location-specific problems. Because some of these, uh, if you put them in certain locations, have very special significance when you're looking at children. All right. So this is yellow. It's legit yellow. Has anyone seen one of these things? You look at these patients, you're like, why do you have a yellow bump on your skin? That shouldn't be something that's physiologic in the body. And you think to yourself, it should be made of cholesterol. It should be a um, yellow marker. You should have a brother that like, drew on you or something. Um, but none of that is the case. These are actually yellow bumps that live in the skin. Um, this is another example of the same thing. If you, think, if you look at this and you say, ah, that one looks a little bit more brown, take out that dermatoscope, which I'm, has questionable utility in terms of actually looking at moles, um, but it's really awesome at looking at everything else in pediatric dermatology. And if you press your dermatoscope on top of this, it will look distinctly yellow under your dermatoscope. Um, so dermoscopy for uh, these uh, lesions is really useful. So this is a juvenile xanthogranuloma. You can do the exact same thing with a slide. You press on the uh, top of the spot. What you're doing when you do that is you're taking all the vascularity out of it. You're taking out all of the uh, kind of surface change out of it, and you're just seeing the color of these, which is distinctly yellow. So juvenile xanthogranulomas super common. You will see these. These definitely will show up in your office. Often kids will have one or two. The parents will think it's a mole. Everything's a mole to parents. Um, The term birthmark is like such a generic term. They think everything within the category of birthmarks is the same thing. Uh, But this is certainly a distinct lesion. Um, And most of these will actually go away on their own. So the question is when to worry about them. And the when to worry is if they have any signs of extracutaneous involvement. So if you see a kid who has one JXG, they have two JXGs, um, they're on the arm, they're on the leg, they're on the butt, uh, they're in scattered areas, that's probably not a child you have to worry about at all. But if you have a really big JXG or if you have a ton of them, if the the child has 10, 15 JXGs, then you want to know about where else they can be. the most common place for them to be is in the eye. So if you have an eye, JXG, it can randomly cause what's called a hyphema, uh, which is a really scary event. I'll show you pictures of it in a second. But essentially, kids bleed into their eye, and they have this um, uh, area of of real liquid blood in the the front of their eye. If you tip them over, you can actually see the level of the blood actually go to the other side. uh, And that's called a a traumatic or a, um, a hyphema. So almost never does this happen, and our general rule is if you have more than five juvenile xanthogranulomas, someone deserves an eye exam. There's no data behind that. There's no big study to prove that. The reality is when you look at this picture, this is actually the only patient I've ever seen who had an intraocular JXG, uh, and I've seen a few hundred patients with JXGs, but this patient had one random spot on the butt um, and had, it, had one in the eye. So you tell parents about it, you tell them if they get a bloody red eye that they should see an eye doctor, and if they have more than five spots, it's very reasonable to send them. Eye exams are completely non-invasive, pediatric, derm- uh, pediatric ophthalmologists are very nice, um, and they can do a, a simple test to make sure that there's not something in the eye. The other simple thing I do is just kind of feel for livers and spleens and any lymph nodes um, and, and make sure the child doesn't have any other obvious signs of a, a, a abnormal review of systems. There's a very rare association with juvenile xanthogranulomas and neurofibromatosis. So, one of the other things to kind of keep on your radar is if you look and you find a JXG, just make sure the kid doesn't have a lot of cafeolays also. Um, the reason that's important is because if you have both JXGs and cafeolays or neurofibromatosis, um, you have a huge increased risk in actually developing leukemia. Um, so in our clinic at, at CHOP, we actually uh, we see a couple of those patients a year, and we actually follow them with CBCs with the oncologists. So that's the only other rare association with JXGs that really matters is if they have it, neurofibromatosis uh, type 1 as well. Okay, um, so rare in terms of ocular involvement. Only a couple percentage of the patients uh, who have skin lesions will actually have ocular involvement. Um, but this is what it looks like. It doesn't prog- uh, project perfectly well, but literally there's blood in the anterior chamber of this eye. The person develops a red eye all of a sudden, and it's just something to kind of make the parents aware of. All right, another brown spot. So this is the brown spot, again, where the parents look at it and they say, aha, that's a mole. The pediatricians all look at it and say it's a mole. But the parents call it the bug bite that kind of comes back at the same spot over and over. That's the classic history. Why does my kid keep getting a bug bite in the exact same spot over and over? Or they'll call it hives. So you're looking at it and you see it's a little tan brown. Um, it doesn't actually have a, a, a pigment backwork when you look at it on dermoscopy. Uh, And so you're wondering what it is. If you have any questions about these, it's so much easier to rub them than than it is to biopsy them. So if you biopsy this, you will certainly get the answer. But biopsying a two-month-old or a 15-month-old is really challenging. So what do you do? You rub it. The person develops a nipple, um, amazingly. So if you weren't paying attention, um, no nipple, nipple, Random joke. Um, I didn't have a picture of the sign of the other one. Um, But this is what happens. They turn red. They hive up. It's a really cool test. You basically took the back of a Q-tip. You rubbed a spot. You made a diagnosis. It's completely non-invasive. The parents are excited. I do tell them this is about to happen. So I tell them your child's about to develop a huge welt and maybe some redness around it, because otherwise, they will freak out when it happens. Um, It's all about... uh, uh, telling parents what's about to happen to their, to their children that makes them much more comfortable. So this is derrier sign. It's really satisfying in clinic. If you rub something that's brown, and you're like, I think it had a derrier that was positive, it was negative, all right? Because when you see true derrier signs, they are legitimately um, uh, really edematous and red around them. This is another one. I mean, there's no question that something happened to that spot when you rubbed it. It turned into a huge welt. Uh, and why does this happen? These spots are actually made of mast cells, and mast cells have histamine inside them, they have leukotrienes inside them, and essentially if you rub them, you release a massive amount of histamine directly into the skin. It's as if you injected their skin with histamine. The problem with these mast cells is that they then reaccumulate the histamine for tomorrow to be able to do the same thing. So if this spot gets rubbed every once in a while by the diaper area, um, or uh, by clothing, or something else, you know, the parents picking up the child, it's going to randomly welt here and there and the parents will be really frustrated and wondering why this is happening. It also looks pretty scary when half of your kid turns red. Parents don't like that. Um, And so they bring people to the doctor when that happens. Um, The first one of these I ever saw as an attending, um, I rubbed, my my resident actually rubbed part of it and said, oh my gosh, it's negative. So I went in and I rubbed the other half of it and it was a really big spot. Um, And that kid turned 100% red and we sent her to the emergency room. She was totally fine. But just when you rub mastocytomas, if it's a big one, rub the little baby edge of it. Don't just like stroke the whole thing and see how much histamine you can get out of it because that can make kids look really red. So the ideal way of rubbing this would have been just to rub the edge of it, this is a pretty exuberant response. The reality is it's not very dangerous to have them release all their histamine because that's what's happening at home anyway, and these kids generally don't have any airway or breathing problems from them, um, but they are pretty scary to look at. All right, so mastocytomas. So um, mastocytomas uh, go along with a couple of disorders that are much more disconcerting to parents. So if you have diagnosed a patient with a mastocytoma and your parents go home and Google it, what they will find is leukemias. They will find adults who have mast cell leukemias. They'll find adults with um, mast cell disorders who often are at risk for leukemias. That is not the same thing in children. If you develop your mastocytomas before the age of five and you have a couple of lesions and you are otherwise well, you have almost zero chance of developing into leukemia. So you do not need to freak parents out. You can tell them it's a separate issue. Um, There's a couple of presentations. There's the solitary giant mastocytoma. This one usually presents with a blistered plaque, So if you're 15 and you have a blistered area over and over and over on your lip, that's herpes. If you're one month old and you have a blistered plaque over and over and over, it could certainly be herpes, and then you have to figure out how that happened. But the other thing that does that is mastocytomas. And why do they blister? They release so much histamine that they end up causing vesiculation of the skin, and it's the random spot that keeps getting red. It keeps getting blistered over and over and over. Um, And you should put that on your differential of a blistering disorder in a young kid uh, because they can um, uh, kind of mimic so many other things. The other way that mastocytomas can present is with urticaria pigmentosa. What that really means is I have a ton of mastocytomas all over my skin. When they're not being rubbed, they look brown. So that's where you get the pigmentosa part of it. And when they do get rubbed or I eat the wrong food, they all urticate and they turn into the red spot. Those kids, again, are really healthy. They really almost never have anything going on with them. The ones to worry about are the ones who either have systemic mastocytosis or diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis. And this is by far the exception. All right, So these are very rare. This is very uncommon. You may never see this. But how do you tell you have diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis or, or um, systemic mastocytosis? This is the kid who has almost no normal skin. So essentially, all of their skin has that peau brown look. If you rub it, it's, it's uh, vesiculating and blistering. This is the kid where if you feed them Advil or if you feed them aspirin by accident, they will end up degranulating all their mast cells and they really can go into shock from this. So this is not the common thing with the the kid who has a couple of mastocytomas, even if you have a bunch of them, but if you have a child who has almost no normal skin, they really should be referred to, to someone who deals with a lot of these things. Okay, and in terms of other symptoms, the symptoms that you worry about if someone has a lot of uh, mastocytomas is the release of histamine, and when you release histamine, you get bad flushing, you get diarrhea, um, you feel lightheaded, you can get hypotensive. Again, it's only going to happen if you release a ton of histamine, which is only going to happen with the kids generally who have a ton of burden of disease, all right? All right, another red, another random brown spot. Um, so yellow-tan spot on the scalp. These pathonomonically have no hair inside of them. So you look at this spot and the parents say, I have a spot on my kid, it never had hair, and now it's bumpy. When these kids actually are first born, this will just be hairless. It actually won't be bumpy and it can be really hard to tell what it is. Once it forms that cobblestone, bumpy appearance, then it becomes more obvious that it's a nevus sebaceous. So a sebaceous is essentially an overgrowth of sebaceous glands. They replace the hair follicles, so there really are by definition no hair follicles inside of here. Um, They should have an intact skin barrier over top of them. They should be a little bit pebbly. And they do exactly what you would expect sebaceous glands to do. They do almost nothing until you hit puberty, and then they get more bumpy. They get acne spots inside of them. They start draining, uh, like, sebaceous fluid, and kids hate them once they get to that age. But before that age, they are really, really just hanging out and doing nothing. Um, There's an old study that talked about the risk of skin cancer in these being as high as 10 to 15 percent. That is not true. So they went back and looked at most of those things that were categorized as skin cancers uh, were actually incorrectly categorized as skin cancers. They were basal cell proliferations, but they were not truly basal cell skin cancers. So do you have to remove all of them? You certainly don't have to remove all of them because the risk of skin cancer is not extremely high. That being said, most patients, if you can remove it, will appreciate you removing it because when the child goes through puberty and they've got sebaceous stuff coming out of their nevus sebaceous and they have growths inside of it, they won't appreciate that. And you will have to respond to those growths and make sure that they're not a skin cancer. It's just a nuisance for the families. So essentially, they're, they're um, there at birth, there's no hair. Um, they should be oval or elongated, uh, and they should have, again, that kind of light yellow tan. This is, again, a place where dermoscopy absolutely plays a role. If you put a dermatoscope over top of one of these things, you can blanch out all the um, uh, redness over top of it, and it will look distinctly yellow under your dermatoscope. Um, they're almost always on the scalp, but they can be on the face. They're much more rarely on other parts of the body. Um, again, the risk of skin cancer is very low. surgical excision is really the only way to treat them definitively, uh, and we we kind of debate that with the parents. I generally leave it up to the parents I say. This is the risk. It's probably a couple percent risk in your child's lifetime that they're going to develop skin cancer. We think most of the risk happens from puberty and beyond, so it's not an early childhood risk. If you would like to remove it and you think your child's going to hate this thing, then absolutely see the plastic surgeon. If they happen to be going getting, getting tubes or tonsils or some other procedure, it's super simple to have them tack on another procedure because they're already getting the anesthesia. So if they're already getting something else done and they want to lump, uh, lump on the procedure, that's very reasonable. But clinical follow-up is also reasonable. We have lots of parents who desperately don't want to give their kids anesthesia. That's totally reasonable, obviously. Um, and if they, don't want to do, if they don't want to take it off, it's very reasonable to follow it. Obviously, if there's a new bump or growth inside of it, you have to biopsy it to make sure it's not a skin cancer. So when do you worry? This is the kid you worry about. So you worry about kids who have nevus sebaceous syndrome. Nevus sebaceous syndrome is by far less common than having an isolated nevus sebaceous. So what makes this different? This is a huge embryologic growth of nevus sebaceous coming down the, the side of the kid's head. Essentially, if you have a really large nevus sebaceous that looks like it's growing in an embryologic pattern, um, it, the other name for this is Schimmelpenning's pennings uh, syndrome or epidermal nevus syndrome. It goes by a bunch of different names. The bottom line to know is that the skin is made from the same embryologic substance as the eye and the brain. So if you have a big skin embryologic defect that's nevus sebaceous, it's very reasonable to make sure that they don't have any eye problems and to make sure that they're following for normal um, growth and development of their brain. Make sure they don't have seizures, make sure they're developing normally along the way. So this is the child who probably does need to be referred. Certainly, the discussion about plastic surgery in this child is very reasonable, um, although that would be a huge surgery, and most parents end up not doing it. Um, but when do you worry? You worry about the kids who have the really large nevus sebaceous. All right, red birthmarks. So that was yellow-tan. So you look at this child, and you're like, huh, red birthmarks. They look like red papules. They're hemangiomas. And all of them are fairly small but man, this kid's got a lot of hemangiomas. And that should trigger in your mind, hmm, maybe I should worry about them. So we're going to look at hemangiomas and kind of decide when to worry about them uh, and what to do about them if you are worried. All right, so the International Society for Vascular Anomalies, I won't bore you with all the nomenclature here, but they've kind of divided up red uh, or vascular um, uh, birthmarks into a couple different categories. There's infantile hemangiomas. Whoops. There's in- Oops. There's infantile hemangiomas, which are actually tumors. um, And there's a couple of rare variants of infantile hemangiomas. There's something called a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma. This is the best-named tumor ever, all right? It's a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma. It is there at birth, and it rapidly goes away. It couldn't be better named. Someone appreciates your time. The other one is called a non-involuting congenital hemangioma, which is non-involuting, it's congenital, and it doesn't go away. Um, These are actually probably brothers or sisters of each other, and a fair number of patients who start out with a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma, it will shrink a little bit and then become a niche, or a non-involuting congenital hemangioma. But the difference with these two lesions is that they are there fully formed at birth. Hemangiomas are typically not fully formed at birth. They are something where the parents look at their child and they see something that looks like a bruise or looks like, you know, dad bumped him into the wall or something else like that. I, I say that as a joke. I by um, accident bumped my child into the wall at like eight hours of life trying to help my, help my wife in the bathroom. I felt really guilty about it. Um, but you get, um, <laughs> childbirth is not a pleasant, well, okay, sorry. So childbirth is a challenging process. There's a lot that goes on. Kids come out with bruises. It is what it is. But sometimes kids will have bruises that end up turning into hemangiomas. These two lesions, riches and niches, they are fully formed as a big nodule at birth. And that is not typical of hemangiomas. So hemangioendotheliomas, tufted angiomas, angiosarcomas are other types of tumors. And then there's malformations. Malformations are things um, that are uh, basically uh, overgrowth of different types of blood vessels. They can be lymphatic, they can be venous, they can be mixtures, they can be capillaries. Um, So just dividing them up a little bit in, in your brain and knowing that there's different types is very useful. All right, so getting back to hemangiomas. When do we worry about hemangiomas? So just raise of hands. How many people think that this patient needs therapy? Okay? How many people don't think they need therapy? How many people need more five-hour energy? All right, cool. So um, so this patient has an upper eyelid hemangioma. Do they need therapy? It totally depends on how old they are. This child actually looks like he's like 12, 12 months old. If you know, looking at them, that they're 12 months old and this, and this hemangioma has never affected their vision and it has stopped growing and it's starting to get better, they might not need therapy. If you alternatively look at them and they're one month old and you know it's going to double or triple in size, they absolutely need therapy to uh, to prevent what might happen to them. So hemangiomas, in terms of when to treat them, it's absolutely depending on where it is and what age the child is. And this is why patients need to be seen really quickly if they have any hemangioma that you think might need to be treated. Um, The newest data for growth in hemangiomas is that most of the growth happens between one and three months of age. And it is rapid. Parents will call you on a Friday and say, this thing is growing a ton, and they are right. And by Monday, it can be literally 25 50% bigger than it was on Friday. They grow really rapidly in a very short period of time, and then they actually stop um, earlier than we thought they were. So I'll give you that data in a second. So hemangioma risk factors. This is called being in America in 2013, Okay. So moms over 30, having more girl babies, CVDS or amniocentesis testing, being a twin, because we often use a little bit more fertility drugs than we did before, and being premature, which goes along with being a twin or being a triplet. So all of the natural trends in our society of kind of delayed childbirth and having more children and having more children at the same time are leading to more hemangiomas. Um, about 4.5% of all children will have a hemangioma. It is by far the most common birthmark um, of significance. Okay, so again, they are not there at birth. If you have a child who comes in with a big vascular tumor at birth and someone calls it a hemangioma, you should be like, hey, you're not right. Let's have them go see someone else because <laughs> they need to have a biopsy of that and figure out what it is. Maybe it's a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma, but maybe it's a myofibrosarcoma. Anything that says the word sarcoma in it, that's not good. So I'll show you pictures of things that were called hemangiomas that are not hemangiomas. If it's present at birth, fully formed, make sure it's actually hemangioma. Um, Rapid uh, growth phases, again, for the first one to four months, uh, and most of them are done growing by that time. So you have a very limited window to actually uh, affect the natural growth of these. There are definitely exceptions to that. So if you have a child who has a very large hemangioma, um, especially kids who have them on the face or on the trunk, they can absolutely grow until the kids are 12 or 15 months old. But for most of the really small ones or the ones that are um, you know a quarter size or smaller, they're going to be done growing early on in life. All right, the involution phase is the other thing to know about. Parents get told by pediatricians all the time, this is going to go away when you're one. What do parents think of that? They think, "Okay, we just had their one-year-old birthday party, we all ate cake, it was cool, I got a balloon, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and the thing is going to be gone and leave normal skin. That's obviously not what happens. It takes one to nine years to happen. And yes, it might start when they're one, but it's a very slow process. And if people have seen what hemangiomas look like after they've quote unquote gone away, sometimes the cosmetic um, result of that is not as good as you would want it to be. And it would be great if we had intervened earlier, if possible. Okay, so when to worry about hemangiomas of infancy? It's based on location and based on age. If you look at location, jawline or neck hemangiomas, quote unquote, the beard distribution. Parents hate when when you call their girl babies hemangioma in the beard distribution. They just don't appreciate that. Um, They are at high risk for having airway involvement. This is the kid who comes in with quote unquote recurrent croup, who sounds like this. "Ah," And they get treated with prednisone, because that's what they do with croup, and they get a little bit better. And then three days later, they sound like this again. "Ah." If you see a patient who sounds like that, their place where they belong is in the emergency room, because your airway at that age is about the size of a straw, and usually those patients are 80 or 90% stenosed, and they are about to completely occlude their airway. All right. So if you have an airway hemangioma or if you have someone who has recurrent croup when they have a beard distribution hemangioma, they absolutely need urgent ENT evaluation. Nasal tip hemangiomas. Does anyone know Michael Jackson? He was awesome. I loved him. He had the best songs ever. He, proved that nasal reconstruction is not a great idea. Okay, So it's not very successful the more times you reconstruct someone's nose. So if you have a nasal tip hemangioma, it would be really awesome to act on that before it creates a bulbous enough nasal tip that you've stretched the skin enough that it's not going to go back to normal. Um, periocular hemangiomas absolutely vision risk. You can see a little tip of the iceberg that's on the uh, tip of an eyelid that might wrap right around the eye. If you have a deep hemangioma around the eye, that person needs to see an eye doctor and they need to kind of get to treatment very, very quickly lip hemangiomas and perineal hemangiomas, everything ulcerates and cracks and breaks down around the lip and around the groin. If you have a lip-groin hemangioma, it is high risk for ulceration. Ulceration is painful, it leaves scars, um, and it, it's very uh, challenging to treat. So these are the hemangiomas that I would especially worry about. I guess I would add to that list just really large hemangiomas. Um, if they are really large, they can cause issues um, in terms of uh, um, functional issues and, um, depending on where they are. Okay, so this is a patient who comes in, and they have, trust me, it's a hemangioma. So if you look from the side, it's actually a nodule. It was not there at birth. It's growing rapidly. You probably would need an imaging test just to prove this is a hemangioma, but this is a hemangioma. Why is this worrisome? This is worrisome because it's growing in a place where your eye is. Your eye is a soft structure. It is meant to be round. If you have anything that grows around it and makes it not round anymore, you can't see out of it. So you need to shut down the hemangioma so your eye stays as a round globe so that you can see this patient needs to be treated emergently. This is a nasal tip hemangioma. It's actually pretty subtle at this point. This person's nasal tip is just barely a little bit dilated. You can see that the top of the hemangioma on top, you could think that maybe that's a capillary malformation, but the whole nasal tip is blue. And it's blue because there's a deep hemangioma in there, and that hemangioma is going to try desperately to turn this nose into a big balloon. Um, And that is not going to turn out well for the child. This hemangioma, alternatively, is much more of a shocker. You look from across the room and you're like, oh my gosh, that thing is huge. Um, and it's on the upper part of the chest. Well, this hemangioma you actually don't need to treat. And why do you not need to treat them? This patient comes into you at 15 months old... He's had this hemangioma the whole time. It's very soft. He has no airway symptoms whatsoever. He's doing great growth and development wise. And this hemangioma really will shrink down and will get a lot better. It's not affecting vision. It's not affecting the nose. It's not affecting the lips. It's not affecting the face. It would be super reasonable to treat this patient, but it's not one that you desperately have to treat quickly. So it's not all about size. It's really about location. I still would treat this patient. I actually didn't treat this patient and saw him back a couple years later and you could barely find the thing. But the reality is that you at least offer um, uh, someone this big. But it's not as emergent as the other ones, even though they're small. This is what hemangiomas look like when they, quote-unquote, go away. So this is a three-year-old who has his hemangioma on the side of his cheek. He's actually probably two at this point. Um, But he has a lot of redundant skin. It's just... uh, I usually use the pregnancy thing. So it's just like blowing up a balloon. If you blow up a balloon super, super far and it gets huge, when that balloon loses all of its air, it's got those wrinkly marks at the edge of it. This is why parents don't appreciate the pregnancy thing. Um, so, um, So the reality is the farther you blow up the balloon, the less likely the skin is to go completely back to normal. So if you can prevent the balloon from getting really big by treating it, you can prevent the skin from stretching enough and you can make the skin potentially go back to normal. So please, please these patients need to be treated early in order to prevent a problem. So this is another one where, functionally, this is not getting in this child's way at all, but it's a big hemangioma on the face, and this is someone who's going to want plastic surgical reconstruction for this. So, again, very reasonable to treat them just to simply prevent them from needing a major surgery. This is an ulcerated hemangioma, super painful for the, parent, uh, for the patients and the parents. Um, it's an infection risk. It will absolutely scar. Again, a reason to treat hemangiomas. All right. Um, I've just shown you a bunch of variants that you do need to treat. I'll tell you that probably 75 or 80 or 90% of hemangiomas absolutely do not need to be treated. So I don't want you to walk out of this thinking you need to treat all hemangiomas. The vast majority of them you do not need to treat, but these are the, um, these are the ones that you do need to treat. This is hard to recognize as a hemangioma, but this is actually what's called an abortive hemangioma, and I'll show you some other pictures of that. This is what hemangiomas look like either when they're about to kind of break out and become huge, or when it's just like the tip of the iceberg, um, or when you have uh, a hemangioma that's just got arrested growth and it's just um, not gonna do anything. But again, this is in the beard distribution. This has ulcerated her lip. And she also is complaining of croup sounds. This is, again, someone who needs to be evaluated immediately. This is obviously someone who needs to be evaluated immediately. Um, And this brings up the other issue with hemangiomas. If you have a large segmental hemangioma, and what do I mean by a segmental hemangioma? We've seen lots of examples of kind of round oval hemangiomas on the face. This is not a round oval hemangioma. This is one that looks like it's growing in an embryologic pattern down the side of this person's face. This is also a segmental hemangioma. It looks like it's growing in an embryologic pattern down this person's chin as if you're kind of like dripping hemangioma. That's a segmental hemangioma. Segmental hemangiomas are much more likely to be associated with internal problems. And there's a couple of named syndromes around segmental hemangiomas. So if you see the round oval one, it's usually just a skin problem and whatever it's affecting in the local area. If you see a big segmental one that looks like it's growing in a quote unquote dermatome, they're not actually dermatomes, but some other segment in the skin, that's much more likely to be associated with problems. All right? So when you look at this child, this child obviously has a hemangioma that's causing a bunch of problems. She's fitting all the rules. The area around the lip very specifically is ulcerating, whereas the rest of the hemangioma is not ulcerating. She has hemangioma that's wrapped around her eye. She needs to see an eye doctor right away. And it turns out that if you have a large segmental hemangioma on the face, especially if you have one that's over 5 centimeters, you're at risk for having what's called face syndrome. Have people heard of face syndrome? Cool. So we'll go through the details in just a second. So this is what was wrong with the child on the inside. And it is absolutely our job in the dermatologic field to say, huh, you have a big segmental hemangioma on your face. I know I need to look on the inside. And the standard of care is to do an MRI, MRA of their head and their neck, and an echocardiogram, and an eye exam. And the reason you do that is because you can have posterior fossa malformations where their um, cerebellum is unformed. This person, I am not a radiologist, but both sides should look like each other. This person is missing a major vessel, and this is a a vessel in your heart called your aorta, um, which, again, I'm an outside-of-the-body type person, but inside the body, the aorta is really important. Um, And your aorta should be really full thickness, and this is a completely stenosed aorta. Her aorta went and just kind of closed down and then reopened and back up. And you'd never know that. This child was sent to us for Sturge-Weber syndrome, which she absolutely doesn't have. I'll show you why in just a second. It's very important that we are able to look at this and say, aha, that's a hemangioma. Aha, that dude told me if it was segmental and it was on the face. Then I need to go and look and image them somewhere else to make sure that they don't have any other problems. This goes underdiagnosed. All right. So again, I'm not a radiologist, but if you look at someone's spinal cord, I promise it's supposed to go straight down. It's not supposed to take a left. So this is a a spinal cord that is being deviated. This is all hemangioma wrapping into the person's spinal cord and pushing their spinal cord over. Spinal cords are important. Again, I'm a dermatologist, but I guarantee you they are important. Um, She uh, was having serious neurologic function um, defects until we gave her um, uh, therapy for her hemangioma. And she actually regained everything. And she actually uh, is completely normal today. Um, This is another large segmental hemangioma, so it's segmental because it looks like it's growing in one of these embryologic patterns. You could again look at this and say, I wonder if it's a port wine stain, but this was not there at birth. It started getting red and lumpy and bumpy, and that's the sign of an early hemangioma, and it actually wraps right up to her lower lip, so it goes right up onto her face also. Um, This child actually again, heart anatomy, I apologize, but um, was called emergently to us because her entire right arm was blue, and her entire right arm was blue because she actually sent uh, her aorta up, and then it completely stopped. She had zero blood going through her aorta. One vessel went up into her brain around her circle of Willis, and the other blood vessel fed back into the other side of her aorta. The radiology report literally reads as, I don't know what's going on. That's a quote. Um, and so basically, she, her complete aorta stopped, one blood vessel into the brain, and her brain was fleeting blood to the rest of her body. It doesn't matter that you know kind of the specifics of this. What matters is you, as dermatologists, look at this and you say, ah, you have a big segmental hemangioma that goes up onto your neck and your face. That dude told me that I need to image you and that we need to make sure that you have normal blood vessels on the inside. Okay? This person got an immersion echo. She got her aorta fixed at one day of life, and she's completely normal now. Um, she's actually did really well. Um, you can see a little bit of that trickling hemangioma going right up onto this not pointer that's not working, um, but right up onto her lip. And that's her segmental hemangioma going right up onto her face. This is rare, but this talk is called When to Worry. Most hemangiomas, again, you don't need to worry about. These are the ones where you do need to worry. Okay, so this is FACES syndrome. Uh, It's comprised of... um, uh, a word spelled phonetically as face. Uh, Alona Frieden names pretty much everything in dermatology, and she named this also. Um, P is uh, posterior fossa malformations. The H is uh, hemangiomas, and then everything else is essentially a big artery went wrong. The biggest artery in your body is your heart, and then you have a bunch of other big arteries in your brain, and then you can have eye anomalies. We've actually had kids who were born completely without sternum, where they have just like heart beating into the skin. Turns out that's actually not a surgical emergency, which is kind of amazing. Um, uh, But anyway, Uh, this is another patient. This patient was sent in to us for diaper rash. This is another abortive segmental hemangioma that's in the groin. And I'll show you a few more pictures of this patient. Why is this important to recognize as a hemangioma? Because it wraps right up onto the butt and onto the leg. And we've learned that those are segmental hemangiomas. And we've learned that segmental hemangiomas can be associated with problems. The two places they're associated with problems are on the face and the neck and in the groin. And why does this matter in the groin? It's highly associated with your spinal cord being tethered. So this person was literally sent to us for diaper rash. And yes, there's an ulceration of the hemangioma here. This is how butt hemangiomas present. They present with large ulcerations. Because if you take a big vascular thing that wants to ulcerate anyway, and then you poop in it and sit in it all the time, it ulcerates. That's what happens. So this is a big ulcerated hemangioma. But this child has lots going on in her glial cleft. Uh, Excuse me, his. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a guy. (laughs) I do that every time. Um, Okay, so uh, you have a big dimple in your gluteal cleft, and you have a gluteal cleft that does not go north in any way. It, like, splits off into a big Y. That is not normal. If you look at your own butt in the mirror tonight, if it does that, you have a problem. You should go image yourself. Um, But this is a marker of having spinal dysraphism. This person's spinal cord is tethered to their uh, skin or to some um, fatty tissue in in the bottom of their spinal cord. Why does that matter? For your first year, you're hanging out, your spinal cord's right there. But when you decide to grow, you have to pull your spinal cord with you. And if you don't pull your spinal cord with you, it actually shears and breaks. And then every neurologic function that you had below your waist is now gone. So if you can pick these kids up early, your friends in neurosurgery can fix this. If you don't pick it up early, the kids will actually lose all bowel, bladder, and walking function. So sounds terribly ominous, but we see this all the time where these are not known to be hemangiomas. They're thought to be port wine stains. They're thought to be all sorts of different things. Hemangiomas that are segmental and abortive in the groin area are high risk for having underlying anomalies. So this was actually named also, it was named sacral syndrome or lumbar syndrome. And essentially what it means is that any system that is under that big segmental hemangioma can go wrong. The kidneys can go wrong, the genitourinary system can go wrong, the GI tract can go wrong, and the spinal cord can go wrong. So anything that's in the area, you don't have to memorize this. You just have to know that it exists and then be able to look it up when you you think you might see it. This is the last patient that that you definitely have to worry about who has hemangiomas. So if you look at them, you say, aha, you've got a bunch of small hemangiomas. I'm not worried about that. I know that those are going to get better on their own. But then when you start counting, if someone has more than five hemangiomas, they are much more likely to have a big liver hemangioma. And if your liver is chock full of hemangiomas, that can lead to high output cardiac failure um, in addition to hypothyroidism. So if you have more than five hemangiomas on a child, even if they're small, ditzel hemangiomas, just feel the child's belly and make sure they don't have a big liver, or ask your pediatrician to. I'll tell you, I'm a pediatric dermatologist. Feeling kids' bellies and deciding whether their liver is big is actually fairly challenging. If you have any questions about it, the pediatricians do it all the time. Just alert them to make sure that they're feeling the belly. If you still can't tell, ultrasound the liver. Generally, if you have more than five hemangiomas, you are getting an ultrasound if, if you come to our practice because it's a non-invasive test, it's super easy, and diagnosing the hemangiomas in the liver makes a big difference. So liver involvement. Occasionally, you can get thyroid dysfunction from it, which makes kids not grow. And occasionally, there's just so much hemangioma there that your, blood, your heart is sending most of the blood in your body to hemangioma instead of to the rest of your body. Um, and that's not very functional. So this is the other kid who had an abortive or segmental hemangioma in his perineum. So this is a big hemangioma. Clearly, something is wrong with this kid's genitals. He showed up to urology first, and urology astutely said, there's also something wrong with your skin. Let's have you see dermatology. Um, And this is a hemangioma. How can you tell it's a hemangioma? It's not just a big purple patch like a port wine stain. There are individual red bumps in here which are classic hemangiomas. And if you look at those individual spots that are turning into bumps, then you have the idea that it's a hemangioma. But again, this is called an abortive hemangioma, or a hemangioma with arrested growth. These are other examples of abortive hemangiomas. They have big, broken blood vessels. It looks like someone paintball splattered you with big, broken blood vessels. Um, And that's classic for a hemangioma. And why, again, is it important to recognize it's a hemangioma? Because if you have a big hemangioma in your lumbosacral area, you now know that you need to look at that person's spine. It's very important. It's very high risk. Okay, so hemangioma therapeutics. This slide has changed dramatically in the last six or seven years. Um, How many people have used propranolol or seen it used? Okay, so it turns out that propranolol has replaced pretty much every other therapy for hemangiomas in almost all patients. It has become standard of care. A couple years ago, I would not have said it that strongly, but it's absolutely standard of care for hemangiomas if someone does not have a contradiction to it and they need treatment. Again, most people do not need treatment, but if you have to treat them, propranolol works extremely well. Your other really good option in 2000, uh 13, um, is Timolol, which is the topical version of propranolol. These are both off-label, 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 off-label. Okay? So there is no on-label treatment for, for hemangioma. So because there's no on-label treatment, it's very reasonable to discuss what's off-label. All right, So no treatment, again, is the treatment for most patients. Topical and laser treatment, so if you're going to laser hemangioma, it is not unreasonable to do that, but understand that you're basically taking the first half millimeter of the depth of the hemangioma and making it look less red. Yes, that pays you a $1,000. No, it is not usually that helpful for the patients. So lasering hemangiomas, it, when they're three or four or five and they have leftover hemangioma and you want to laser it to make it look better, certainly reasonable. But in isolation, in a two- or three-month-old lasering hemangiomas, is not usually as effective as some of the other treatments. There are people who will um, uh, speak against that uh, um, who do a lot of laser. But generally, if you can laser something, usually you can put topical timolol on it and actually get a better result. So when do you choose to do systemic therapy? Again, we talked about it. If the hemangioma is affecting function or if the hemangioma is going to lead to a terrible cosmetic output in the long run, it would be great to treat them with systemic therapy. The gold standard for the last 25 years has been prednisone. As of about 6 or 7 years ago, it was replaced by propranolol because propranolol seems to be safer and is certainly more effective. But there are contraindications uh, Propranolol is not a drug that you should be using unless you um, are absolutely uh, um, trained in how to use it. So it is something that uh, um, we often, we take extremely seriously, and we often admit patients when we start it, or we work with cardiologists, but however you do it in your community, um, propranolol is extremely uh, beneficial. Um, surgical remover for hemangiomas, we almost all, never do that anymore because propranol is so effective. There are some rare cases where you have to remove the leftover tissue of a hemangioma. So this is the original propranol report. I read this, and I thought it was a, like, it, I actually thought it was not real. Um, so, uh, <laughs> wow, my filter just kicked in. So you'll hear, yes, okay. You'll hear things from from, um, drug companies every once in a while where you look at it and you're like, that's too good to be true. And this is one of those things where it was too good to be true, except it wasn't from a drug company, and then it actually ended up being actually true. This is the patient at initial presentation. This is seven days after initiation of propranolol. Why did this person get put on propranolol? They get put on propranolol because they were on high-dose steroids and they ended up with a heart problem. And the cardiologist said, well, I need to fix your heart problem. They put them on propranolol, and magically it fix the hemangioma. This is not doctored. This is a month or two months after being on propranolol. Seriously, that's legit. This drug works as long as you catch things really early. It's amazing. It is absolutely life-changing. In pediatric dermatology, it was like hydrocortisone, and then like 30 years later, propranolol. Okay? It is that much better than everything else that we've had. So propranolol um, has absolutely changed the lives of a lot of the patients that we've treated. Again, you usually don't have to use it, but when you do need to use it, um, you need to um, just be aware that it exists. So propranolol therapy, no one has any idea really how it works. In reality, you give the first dose of propranolol and the hemangioma starts shrinking, so at very least a little bit of its constriction. Um, but probably some of it is downregulation of VEGF and um, uh, other pathways. I don't really like pathways, so I'm not going to explain any of the rest of this because I don't really understand it. And most of it is hypothesis. All right, so who can't get propranolol? Who can't get propranolol? Babies who are super young and premature and already have histories of bradycardia, they should either not get propranolol or should get propranol in an intensive care unit with a cardiologist saying, sure, give them propranolol. That sounds like a good idea. You have to be very careful in very young children. Um, Patients with FACES syndrome, if you have stenotic vessels or if you only have a little bit of arterial flow going into your brain and then you give someone something that's going to drop their blood pressure, that can be catastrophic. So we used to think it was an absolute contraindication. Now it's just one of those things where you just want to make sure that somebody who's using it in face syndrome is someone who's used it a lot and is very experienced, but it's not an absolute contraindication. Um, Bradycardia, hypotension, and actually the one that gets the least play but is absolutely the most important is low blood sugar. If you give someone propranolol, you can absolutely cause them to seize by giving them low blood sugar. So the most important thing, kids are very good at compensating for blood pressure. They're very good at compensating for blood um, heart rate. They are not very good at compensating for blood sugar. So if you give someone propranolol, and honestly, you probably shouldn't be giving propranolol unless you've done it a lot before and someone has trained you really well how to do it, um, but if, you, if you're taking care of someone who's on propranolol, the parents need to feed the kid with the dose of the medication. If the, if the child will not eat, if you have like the six month old who is on a hunger strike that day, don't give the drug. All right? So you can skip doses if, if the child is not eating, but they absolutely need to eat with the doses of the drug. That is the most important thing with propranolol. Um, We actually hospitalize everyone under two months when we give it. There's actually a huge journal of pediatrics articles explaining exactly how to give um, propranolol. It came out, uh, I think, about six months ago, and it was a nationwide consensus on exactly how to give it. It actually has a very good protocol in there, um, and we follow that protocol pretty closely. Um, And most of the kids over two or three months old at most centers don't get hospitalized anymore. But again, this is a serious drug. This is not something that you should be just giving out willy-nilly. Um, These are some propranolol, uh, some of our patients. This is a month after starting uh, propranolol. The child literally can't see the hemangioma anymore. Um, This is this child's ulcerated hemangioma. If you've ever tried to take care of ulcerated hemangiomas, they are torture. They are extremely hard to treat. They're extremely hard to get better. Um, But this is actually after a month of propranolol. Um, This really has been uh, life-changing. Um, timolol, just a, a brief note. Again, off-label. It's meant as an eye drop. It's meant for glaucoma, but it is the topical version of propranolol. Um, we use one drop twice a day of timolol when we when we need to. But it's great for little hemangiomas around the eye where you want to do something, but they don't really deserve propranolol, or the little hemangioma on the cheek. Um, But, again, you have the same risks of low blood pressure, low blood sugar, and low heart rate. And you absolutely need to tell the parents um, about those risks and make sure the child doesn't have any of the contraindications to propranolol. I assume Timolol is going to be absorbed when I give it to someone just to make sure that they don't run into any of the problems. And I tell the parents the same thing make sure they feed with food when they put the drop on the skin. And I make absolutely sure that the parents are not, or the pharmacy is not labeling it as being used in the eye, because the pharmacist will be confused that you're actually putting it on the skin. But you are truly putting it on the skin and not in the eye, and you're not feeding it to them. Uh, so it's a topical uh, use of the drug, and, again, certainly off-label. But there are now many, many studies on timolol, um, and it seems to be uh, safe, at least in the current literature. Okay, so red birthmarks. Again, not everything is a hemangioma. This is a big red uh, um, raised plaque on the left side of this person's head, and it looks like it's in a V1 distribution. This one is growing. It's lumpy-bumpy. This is absolutely a hemangioma on the right, on your left so, on your right is the child with a port wine stain. And what's the difference between port wine stains and hemangiomas? Port wine stains are there at birth, they're purple, they don't change, and they're very kind of evenly distributed. There's none of these huge broken blood vessels inside of it that you can see over here. Um, It's basically uniform color across the skin, and it essentially doesn't change. If the children cry, it will get a little bit more purple, but otherwise it's not doing anything uh, dynamic. So port wine stains bring a whole different set of risks associated with them. If you have a port wine stain on the face and it involves the V1 distribution, which is essentially the forehead down to the lower lid of the eye, you can have a high risk of glaucoma. This person needs to see an ophthalmologist yesterday. So they really should have seen an ophthalmologist literally within the first couple of days of life. Um, And if you see someone who has a V1 port wine stain and they have not seen an ophthalmologist, please send them there immediately. What people think about with port wine stains around the eyes, they think about the seizure risk. There's about a 10% seizure risk if you have just a V1 port wine stain. There is a much higher glaucoma risk, and if you do have glaucoma that's um, congenital, you can lose vision in that eye very quickly. So send them to ophthalmology first, and then tell the parents about the risk of seizures, and if they want to see neurology, that's very reasonable. Um, If you have a V123 lesion, so if you have a a port wine stain that goes all the way down to the side of the face, or if you have bilateral V1, your risk of actually having seizures or Sturge-Weber syndrome goes up to 30%. Um, So again, those patients, it's very reasonable to have them see neurology. We do not necessarily image everybody because you're not going to prophylactically treat for seizures. Some kids will have this and never have seizures, but we do have them see the neurologist just to make sure that there's not anything else going on. Again, not everything that's red that you're born with is a hemangioma. You look at this, yes, it's red, yes, it's growing, Yes, someone did a four millimeter punch out of it at the bedside who was a resident. I know my boss told them to do that. I was a little shocked. Yes, he has four grams less hemoglobin in his system after that. Um, But this is not a hemangioma. This is um, you, You could never know what this is. You can't look at this and be like, oh, that's a blah, 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 blah. But you can look at it and be like, hmm, not a hemangioma, and everything else on the list is mostly bad. All right, so then you can be like, oh, bad. Let's get someone to biopsy it in the OR who's good at biopsying stuff, who can control massive bleeding, because you're literally sticking a punch biopsy into a massive group of blood vessels. All right, this is actually a coposiform hemangioendothelioma. It doesn't really matter what it's named. It's bad, and it's something that needs to be treated, and it's not a hemangioma. This is also not a hemangioma, but was treated as a hemangioma. This is a fibrosarcoma. Um, This is someone whose arm needs to be removed, unfortunately, in order to cure this. Um, When it looks vascular, it looks red, you're born with it. But if, if you look at it and your spidey sense says to you that's not a hemangioma, you're probably right. And someone, probably not any of us, should biopsy it to make sure it's not a hemangioma. All right? Okay, um, this is actually a hemangioma, but it's just hard to tell because it's in um, someone who has a little bit of background skin color. So it turns out that melanin uh, will cover up some of the redness of hemangiomas, but this is a hemangioma. And why is this hemangioma risky? It's risky because it's perfectly over the lumbosacral spine. If you have a lumbosacral spine hemangioma or multiple other types of birthmarks specifically over the lumbosacral spine, they can be associated with spinal cord tethering or spine problems. All right? This is a capillary malformation or a, a stork bite over top of the lumbosacral spine. This is actually lower risk, but you still have to um, look around in these patients. Uh, you're looking for any other stigmata of spinal dystrophism, I'll go through what those are in a second. If you have a lump of hair growing out of um, the tush of a two-month-old, that's not OK. Okay, You're not allowed to have this. There are huge ethnic differences in terms of the amount of hair that people will have on the lumbosacral spine. The best way to tell if it's an abnormal amount of hair is if it's terminal, that's probably not okay. So if it looks like you could take that tuft of hair and like put it in someone's bald patch and it would fit right in, that's not okay. If they're little vellus hairs and they're a little smooth and soft, it probably is fine. You just have to look at their upper shoulders and make sure it matches the hair that's on their upper back. So you'll see people from certain parts of the world or certain ethnicities who will have excess hair on their back, and that's okay as long as it matches the lumbosacral spine in the upper back. Um, but if you have a kid who has an isolated random patch of especially terminal hair, again a marker of spinal cord problems again hemangioma so perfectly located in the lumbosacral spine this person needs imaging to make sure their spinal cord is normal even though they have a fairly small hemangioma this is our patient from before big, segmental hemangioma, um, little ditzels. You can see little red areas inside of it um, on the scrotum and on the butt um, that are, are more clearly hemangioma, and the rest of it is abortive. But this person absolutely has spinal cord tethering and needs to be imaged immediately. So this little girl actually came in because uh, she's supposed to have her eyes colored. She's very cute. Um, She actually came in to see us because um, uh, she had a little spot on the tip of her nose and it kept leaking fluid and the parents were really annoyed about it and they wanted me to punch it out. If you're born with it, and it is in the midline, anywhere from the nasal tip to your lumbosacral spine, please don't biopsy it, because what you're going to get into is brain. And unless you're a neurosurgeon, you don't belong in brain. All right? So this is a little track that feeds from the inside of the brain down to her nose, and the stuff that's leaking out is cerebrospinal fluid. Um, and every time they pinch it, they get a little more CSF coming out. Again, Why this In in every other child you're ever going to see, this is just acne. But she is born with it, it is in the middle of her nose, and it is leaking fluid. If you are born with it, and it is anywhere along the midline, from the tip of your nose to your lumbosacral spine, think twice before you biopsy it and make sure it's imaged and seen by someone uh, to make sure it's not connected. So risks of cranial or spinal dysraphism, just to understand those words, I don't understand those words. Something went wrong with the brain or the spine. That's not good. So skin signs of something went wrong with the brain or the spine. Um, Excess uh, hair over top of an area, a dimple, a skin tag, a tail. Honestly, if you have a tail and you're not sending them to someone else, you probably should. A lipoma, a hemangioma of infancy. Sorry, that's what HOI stands for. Aplasia cutis, which is where you're missing skin, a dermoid cyst. And then a little bit lower risk are things like telangiectasias, port wine stains, hyperpigmentation, nevi. Um, But again, if you're born with it and it's perfectly over the midline of your spine or your um, uh, glabella of your nose, you, you should worry about it. This is actually this is my drawing. Um, This person looks really old and kind of freaky, um, but that's my hand on a Mac. All right, so this area right here is where your spinal cord is, or where your um, neural tube is fusing as it comes together. So it's a hot spot of either this arrow messed up or this arrow messed up. The back of your spine is the same. The back of your head is the same way. The base of your skull is the same way. And then lo and behold, your lumbosacral spine is the same way. This is where spinal cord fusion goes wrong, is in these various stereotypical areas. Now I need to carry two things. All right, so brown birthmarks just in the last few minutes. So um, congenital nevi. Parents will freak out about congenital nevi. They are usually fine. Again, we can reassure people about most of them. Less than 1.5 centimeters is small. 1.5 to 20 is intermediate. Over 20 centimeters is large or giant. There's a newer category, which is over 40 centimeters. is technically called giant at this point, Um, but uh, that's um, very new. The risk of malignancy is probably based on size, and that makes sense statistically. If you have more melanocytes, you have more um, cells that can go wrong. So if you have a huge mole, you just have more cells that have the chance of going wrong. So if you're less than 20 centimeters, and 20 centimeters is a big mole, is a very large mole, um, your risk of malignancy is probably less than uh, 5%. So they talk about 3 to 10%. That risk is actually based on old studies. The, the newer the data comes out, and they're mostly doing this at NYU where they're following people for longer and longer periods of time, the longer they follow people, the lower the risk of melanoma, it seems. So if you're over 20 centimeters, this makes actually sense, what I wrote on the slide, um, your risk is 3 to 10%. If you are under 20 centimeters, it's really less than 2%. It is a very, very small risk. Um, And what's the therapy? You essentially follow them for any new nodules, papules, or color change. And if you develop a new spot in a congenital nevus, it should be biopsied. Um, Surgery may decrease the risk of melanoma, but actually in moles that are under 20 centimeters, it's never been shown to actually do that. Uh, And that may just be because the risk is so small to begin with, but we usually don't cut these out unless cosmetically the parents want them cut out or unless they're really easy to cut out, because you can miss melanocytes that go all the way down to the fat or down to the fascia. And if you form a melanoma down in your fascia after a surgery and you're trying to detect it over to underneath of a scar, that's a really challenging thing to do. So we generally don't cut them out unless they're really easy to cut out or unless cosmetically the parents want them cut out. Um, This is the type of mole that has a a little bit of a difficulty in terms of following it because you have a nodule in the center of it. It actually has hair coming out of it, and it's perfectly over the spine. This is one where their spine needs to be imaged to make sure that their spinal cord uh, uh, developed normally, and someone, not you, needs to biopsy that nodule in order to make sure that that's okay. But this absolutely needs to be imaged before you biopsy them because it's perfectly over the spine, and they were born with it. It breaks that rule of I'm over the spine, and I'm born with it. All right, this is the patient really to worry about. So this is the patient who has a giant congenital nevus, it's a bathing trunk nevus, and they have over 20 satellite lesions. What do we mean by satellite lesions? Any little mole that's not in the giant mole is a satellite lesion. And why do you worry about ones where they have over 20 of them? If you have over 20 of them, Essentially, you have mole cells that migrated all over the place during development. And one of the places they could have migrated is inside the spinal cord of the brain. And if they're inside the spinal cord of the brain and they start growing, they basically take up a space that is not allowed to have moles. It blocks the CSF and it can give you seizures. And if you develop melanoma within your spinal cord, you you, um, generally do not live. Okay, so that's called neurocutaneous melanosis, when you actually have mole cells on the inside of your spinal cord or your brain. Um, Again, the biggest risk is not actually having a giant congenital nevus, but it's having a giant congenital nevus and satellite moles. The satellite moles are like splatter paint of moles over top of the child. Um, We don't image everyone, but we offer them uh, MRI imaging of their brain and their spine to make absolutely sure that we know if they have any moles on the inside. The bottom line is this is the person you worry about and, and should be seen by someone who handles a lot of these moles. Another congenital nevus. This is a dark-skinned patient. The parents say that this thing has been here forever, but they're not totally sure if this spot has been there forever. It does not matter what your background skin color is. If you have a congenital nevus and you grow a new nodule in it, you have to biopsy the new nodule at the very least, if not take out the whole thing. So this was an atypical spitzoid tumor in a dark-skinned patient. We don't know the real risk of those turning into melanoma, but it is not zero, and so these are removed in order to make absolutely sure. Even if someone has dark skin, use your spidey senses. If you look at the mole and it is not right, biopsy it. Um, this is dermal melanocytosis. Just to end on a little happier note, this is never a problem, essentially. Um, there's like two reports of people having uh, mucopolysaccharidosis. I'm going to say that out loud and ask you to completely unmemorize that fact. Neuro, uh, dermal melanocytosis or Mongolian spots are generally never a problem. So you can reassure parents that they will get lighter. They're a little bit more common in darker skin patients, um, and they are not associated with any issues. Okay, last one. This is a one week old who comes in to see you and has firm brown nodules on the back. The only reason they're this color is because that's the skin color of the patient. There's a little bit of redness around the edge of it. It looks like it should be an abscess. You look at it and you think, this should be like MRSA. It should be a furuncle of some sort. Um, And this is not there at birth. It actually shows up in a few days. And what this is is necrosis of the fat. So if you have an extra large baby and you have an extra small mom or you have moms who have very long childbirth, it basically crushes the fat of the baby against the mom's pelvis, and if you crush fat, it actually uh, will solidify and then turn into these nodules. And this is called subcutaneous fat necrosis. So there's tender, firm nodules. They are not there at birth because you actually have to have birth in order to create them. They show up within the first two weeks of life. They actually spontaneously go away, but they can lead to high calcium levels as they are going away. So they need to be followed for hypercalcemia. This is one of those things where if you didn't know what it was and you didn't biopsy it, it's going to go away on its own. But they still need to be followed for calcium levels, so it's good to know know for sure. um, And it's something that uh, um, is important to diagnose. Fortunately, most of the kids do fine. Most of the kids don't have high calcium levels, um, but it's very reasonable to check. All right, so in summary, um, birthmarks come in lots of different varieties. Color can really help you differentiate them. Location is key to lots of these things, and if you're concerned about a birthmark and you think it's weird, it probably is, and you should send it to someone who sees a ton of them um, or think about kind of what imaging or other tests you might need for it. So, all right, thank you very much. Can you please clarify what you said about excising the small congenital nevi and the concern of melanocytes left in the subcutaneous Yes so um, so the data shows that um, excise so small congenital nevi, ones that are less than 1.5 centimeters, um, have no quantifiable risk of turning into melanoma. So if you are less than 1.5 centimeters and you are born with it, they actually can't tell you what risk of melanoma because it's so low. It's probably not zero, but it's probably, um, they actually estimate it less than 1 in 10,000. So a small congenital nevus, you are probably going to be able to get the whole thing out. It's super reasonable to remove it if if the parents want you to remove it, et cetera. And that's totally reasonable. Intermediate size congenital melanocytic nevi, so between 1.5 and 20 centimeters, it has never been proven that if you remove those, you're actually reducing the person's melanoma risk. So you can tell people that theoretically, we're probably reducing your melanoma risk, but if you have mole cells that, bless you, that grow all the way down into your fascia and your muscle and you're not gonna remove all of them, then you're probably making it very hard to follow it over time. Again, cosmetically, we remove lots of those things if you really want to, but you don't have to remove them. There's no data that says, Everyone who has a mole over 1.5 centimeters should have it removed. They probably just all need the conversation of these are the pros and cons of removing it or not. But we don't think it really reduces their risk of melanoma. Bless you. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I don't know how to call on people. Yeah, go for it. Hey, could you make a comment on hypopigmented lesions and when you would worry about those? Absolutely. um, So hypopigmented lesions. The ones that we worry about the most are individual oval hypopigmented lesions if you have more than three. All right, so more than three is the risk factor for having tuberous sclerosis. And if you have more than three hypopigmented lesions, this is where your black light comes into play. It's awesome. You shine a black light at people, you decide whether they have more than three. If they do have more than three, look for other spots. So look for bumps on their nose, which are angiofibromas. Um, look for little shagreen patches on their lower spine. Uh, Look for periungal fibromas, which don't usually show up until later. Have an eye doctor look in their eyes. So I I would refer that person to eye ophthalmology and plus-minus genetics. Um, The much more common version of a white spot is just having one random white spot. That person does not meet one criteria for TS, and so so I would still look around. But if you don't find anything else, they can just be followed. And then there are people who have wavy or like block-like pigmentation, where they're just missing a segment of pigmentation on their belly or on their leg, and it's like one big block of pigment that's either too much or too little. Those patients, again, almost always have nothing wrong with them. The other patients to worry about are the ones that... Um, Blaschko's lines... Did you guys... Everyone cool? All right, so Blaschko's lines are these little thin lines of migration in your, cell, in your body. And if you have a bunch of individual white lines... That is high risk for having what's called pigmentary mosaicism, which again, the skin and the brain are made by the same uh, part of the um, uh, uh, embryology. And because of that, you can have seizures and developmental issues if you have thin white lines. So as a general rule, if you have more than three oval or round white spots, that person needs to be ruled out for tuberous sclerosis. If you have a bunch of individual thin white lines all over, that person has a risk of what we call hypomelanosis of Edo, although we're getting away from that term. The newest term is called pigmentary mosaicism, um, and they can have um, uh, ophthalmologic or neurologic problems. Did that answer the question? Cool. Thanks. How often do you um, follow up on a, like a congenital nevi or do you have the pediatrician keep yeah, an eye on it? Or It totally depends on how clear it is. If it is a clean slate where you look at it and anyone is going to be able to tell whether there's a brown spot or a bump inside of it, I might see them back in a couple of years, especially if they're like in that intermediate range. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my general rule is I would see probably that person back in a year until I really felt like the parents knew what they were looking for. Also, if you can take a picture and you have a shared medical record with any of the pediatricians, that's fantastic because then they have a picture to follow. With phone pictures, like parents can often bring a picture of what it used to look like, and that makes it a nice way to follow. The overall growth of it doesn't really matter much. It matters what's happening inside the mole, and you kind of have to teach parents that. So I would say with small congenital nevi that are completely normal and there's nothing wrong with them, they probably don't need to be followed. Intermediate size ones from 1.5 to 20 centimeters, I'd probably see them back every year until I really felt like the parents knew what they were looking for. Over 20 centimeters, I see them every three months in the first year and then every six months until they're about puberty just because their risk is highest in the beginning of life. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Hi. I just recently excised, uh, you know, uh, angiokeratoma, kerato- uh, angio cool. uh, 45 years old, uh, ladies, lumbar, illo-lumbar uh, spy. So uh, after you talk, I'm thinking about should I send her to image study? So was she born with it? Uh, I believe so. It's interesting. So angiokeratomas are not on the list of things that it's especially high risk. Um, but uh, we, we, were, we kind of perseverate over these patients a lot when they're a few months old because you can't just easily MRI them um, because an MRI is something that's a sedated procedure. It costs like $25,000 in kids and you have to give them anesthesia to do it. But in a 45-year-old, if it was a big angiokeratoma and it was going perfectly over their lumbosacral spine mm-hmm. um, and there was any other signs of like deviation of the gluteal cleft or if they had any kind of symptoms of tingling or sensation, it would be easy to MRI them, although you're probably not going to find anything. But there's no data on angiokeratomas. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah? Yes. Now, was that around stem? It's the, so HIPAA. um, So I cut out the rest of his face, it was the side of his cheek. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the problem with coposiform hemangioendotheliomas, as you know, is they can cause local clotting and, and DIC, and you can all of a sudden get it to turn, like, it'll turn hugely purple because they just bled into it. So that's another phone call where, when to worry, if you have someone who has a quote-unquote hemangioma, and they call you and, and it, like, looks bruised and purple all of a sudden, it's probably not a hemangioma. It's probably a form hemangioendothelioma. Uh, Yeah, seriously, I know. One of our resident's biops, he did. He was told to by our boss. um, That didn't work out okay. But um, plastic surgeons are really nice people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I have two girls I see every day like that. Um, my wife's Cindy, and also, um, and both of my kids have pigmentary mosaicism. So, so yes, I think when you have parents, who, this, there's no data for this either, but I think when you have parents who have mixed mismatched col- col- uh, colors and someone's lighter or darker than the other, you often see blocks of pigmentation. Um, the problem with having pigmentary mosaicism is if you have a bunch of thin lines of pigment, whether dark or light, you can have associations with it. The problem with using the term hypomelanose Ito, and the reason we're getting away from it is because every kid who had a white line was labeled as hypomelanose Ito, and every parent who went home uh, from that visit read and said, oh my gosh, my kid's going to be neurologically devastated and never going to make it to first grade, and they all die, and that's not helpful um, because most of the patients are just fine. No, the ones, the ones we send for further imaging are the ones who have um, issues with their um, growth and development or have very widespread pigmentary issues. Um, yeah. Alona Frieden put out a really nice article two years ago calling segmental pigmentary anomalies or seg, seg- pig disks, pe- segmental pigmentary disorders. And she put together 45 patients who had literally nothing wrong with them who all had pigmentary anomalies. It was very reassuring for the rest of us. I'm sure I'm supposed to stop at some point. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys very much.